Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Opening with a tandoori, a wood-burning grill, two woks, and 12 burners, a bunch of cooks that we hadn't had time to train. It was just me and Susan who knew the recipes, and we knew them inside and out, but we just couldn't spread ourselves far enough to make that opening, you know, bearable. But I think, you know, it it really set me up to never do that again, believe me. HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Mary Sue Milliken. Mary Sue Milliken is often credited with helping define Los Angeles' culinary landscape. Along with her partner, Susan Feniger, she opened City Restaurant, Border Grill, and Ciudad, all critically acclaimed restaurants in the Los Angeles area. She's published five cookbooks and is a seasoned TV personality. Mary Sue was a food star before there were many. She's never been afraid to take risks, and her journey begins in St. Clair, Michigan. You know, I started my journey in food when I was really young. I fell in love with cooking when I was, I think, in about sixth grade through a crazy recipe I found in one of my mother's magazines that I got up at four in the morning to make, and it turned out it was puff pastry, or Danish dough, actually, with a yeasted dough. And when, uh, you know, when it rose in the oven and became that flaky pastry, I was just completely mesmerized and hooked because I... I was so baffled by the recipe. Like you roll out the dough and you roll out the butter to a certain 17 inches by 12 inches and then you fold and roll and fold and roll. And I thought, well, what is all this rigmarole going to accomplish anyway? And then when I saw the the final product, I was just, you know, completely hooked. And I, I started, you know, looking at food much more seriously after I was about 16 and I met a professional chef who was a friend of my sister's. And it was just in one evening's dinner party that I decided I would not go to college but go to chef school instead. And I hurried off to move to Chicago from Lansing, Michigan, and try to get into chef school when I was 17. I could see that my mom's face sort of fell when I told her I wanted to go to chef school. It was sort of like saying, you know, I'm going to go and be an auto mechanic. You know, nobody could really get behind that. It wasn't very exciting. There weren't any celebrity chefs. There weren't any role models for women in cooking in 1976. You know, Julia Child was on TV, but she didn't own restaurants, and it was still, you know, early on before Alice Waters was getting to be known. There were a couple of French women chefs in Paris, and I think the vibe at home was you know, she'll go do that for a year and she'll realize that that's way too hard and and then we'll get her into college or something. But, um, of course, that didn't happen. I fell in love with everything about the kitchen, everything about the the camaraderie of the, you know, food community and the way restaurants worked. And, you know, it didn't... I, I went just deeper and deeper. I didn't really... It didn't ever... I, I never felt daunted by it. Mary Sue left home at 17 to attend Washburn Culinary Institute in Chicago and follow her dreams. 
It was there where she'd get her feet wet and eventually meet Susan Feniger, her culinary partner. I've always loved Chicago. It, the city was so good to me. I mean, I was a 17-year-old, kind of fresh-faced young girl from Michigan, and I was going to chef school on the south side at 31st and Kedzie, and uh, in a pretty rough neighborhood even. But I got lots of support from the, my jobs and from the people at school. I was, you know, kind of unusual. There were two women in a class of 100 uh, students in the chef department, and it was a two-year program every day of the year except for Thanksgiving and Christmas Day. Um, and the weekends, we, we didn't work, but we were in school five days a week for two years straight. And at night, I worked in restaurants. So although I didn't have a lot of time to explore the city, I did always feel like Chicago was very welcoming and supportive. And I got a scholarship, actually, for my second year of chef school, which at the time, uh, it was a trade tech school on the south side of Chicago called Washburn Trade School. And at the time, tuition was $1,500 a year. And it was such a relief when I got a, a full scholarship for the second year of college, of uh, trade school. Mary Sue's relationship with Susan Feniger would help define her career. Mary Sue and Susan were the first women ever to receive the California Restaurant Writers' prestigious Chef of the Year Award. When I graduated, I didn't at all feel like I was really ready for much more than a, a good line cook job. And I had my sights set on a restaurant called La Paroquet, which was owned by a Yugoslavian gentleman. And it was one of the top two or three French restaurants in the city at the time, 1978. The director of Washburn Trade School was a Yugoslav, and I went to him and I said, do you think you could get me an interview with Jovan Trebojevic? Because that's really the only restaurant I want to work in. I'm, it's really the best place to eat in the city, and I want to learn how to make that food. And he got me an interview, and I went in and um, had a great chat with Jovan, but he uh, he just kind of laughed and said... "I." I couldn't hire you to work in the kitchen because you'd cause havoc back there. You know, no one would be able to concentrate. They'd be looking at you, and, you know, you're a pretty girl, and this would be just too much of a problem for me. So I, I can't really offer you a job, but, you know, maybe you'd like to work as a hat check girl in the restaurant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was crushed. I cried all the way home in the car, and uh, I just decided I'm not going to take no for an answer. I started a letter campaign, and I started calling him on the phone once a week, sending a letter twice a week, and finally, after about a month, he said, uh, you know, are you going to sue me? And I said, no, I really just want a job. And he said, all right, come in tomorrow morning, 325 an hour, and you can work, you know, the day shift. So I went in, and it actually... It, it was definitely the best job as far as training that I had anywhere. I learned such an enormous amount. My instincts were right about the way the kitchen was run, the way the, the culture in the kitchen, the recipes, the way the food was handled, the, the creativity with which the recipes were conceived. It was all just groundbreaking, amazing experience for me. And about three months later, a young girl came in to apply for a job, and Jovan hired her on the spot. <laughs> and I think he was thinking, wow, you know, the first one works circles around the boys, and she's half the price. I think I'll take another one. 
And that happened to be Susan Veniger, and that's where I met my business partner of the last 33 years. Immediately, when I met Susan, the first day in the kitchen, I think we were immediately drawn to each other, um, not because we were both women, but because we both had an amazingly similar work ethic and drive and passion. I think I hadn't met anybody, male or female, up until that point who had as much drive and passion to learn about cooking as I did, and Susan definitely had that much, maybe even a little more. We became pretty fast friends very quickly. At the end of every day, we'd go down and uh, sit and maybe have a beer and look at our notebooks and talk about the recipes we'd made that day and compare notes about the last time we made it and the next time we were going to make it, what we were going to do differently and where we wanted to move in the kitchen and how we wanted to, you know, what other recipes we were hoping to learn and to make. And when the chef finally went on vacation about a year later, he put the two of us in charge. And we would go in probably like at 5 in the morning when we were expected in at 8, and we would just get there early and, you know, clean out the walk-in and get everything ready for the day. And um, it was just, you know, a pretty amazing, transformative job for both of us. Like Alice Waters and many other great culinary leaders of the food revolution, Susan set out to explore France in order to refine her culinary skills and broaden her horizons. It was there that her and Susan would start thinking about working for themselves and opening up their own place. Neither of us felt ready to open our own restaurant, but we both kind of felt ready to take on another learning experience that was as serious if if we could find one. Susan decided to move to California and pursue some of the kind of jobs that we were starting to hear about in California. You know, we were hearing about Alice Waters, hearing about Mommy's Own and a guy named Wolf, and she decided she was going to move to California and check out what was going on. And I, in the meantime, was offered a job with my friends who owned a bakery to be the head chef of a small cafe that they were opening. So it was kind of attractive, and I thought that would be a great experience, and I'd like to, you know, try it. And so we both went off to do those things and spent about a year. Susan got a job working at Mommy's Own for Wolfgang Puck, and I opened this restaurant, this cafe in on the north side of Chicago with my friends who owned the bakery. And after about a year, I felt restless again, and I decided, well, the, the guys who owned the bakery, one of them was my boyfriend, so we broke up, and I decided I had to move at least 2,500 miles away. <laughs> so I went back and talked to Jovan at Le Perroquet and asked him if he could help me get a job in France. And he said, well, coincidentally, he was going to be leaving for France in a couple of weeks, and I could tag along, and, you know, he introduced me to some of his friends in Paris. So um, that's exactly what I did. I sold everything, packed up my one suitcase, and I moved to Paris without a job, and I didn't speak a word of French. But when I landed, I actually had been in touch with Susan, and as it turned out, she was going to be moving to the south of France to work at uh, Loisis, a three-star restaurant, and... Um, and during that, fir- that year abroad, she worked there, and I was 
able to land a job in Paris working for uh, a fantastic woman named Dominique Namias at a restaurant called Restaurant d'Olympe, and it was a two-star restaurant. So I think, you know, that was sort of the final apprenticeship that w- that really gave me a lot of confidence, and I I loved living in France. I loved learning the French kitchen and being around people who were as obsessed with food as I was. By the end of that first year in Paris, I felt like I was starting to feel confident and ready to make my own kind of mark in and open my own restaurant. When the the season ended down in the Riviera, uh, she came to Paris and spent a couple months hanging out at my apartment, and uh, that's when we kind of really cemented our friendship and decided that we would someday go into business together and open our restaurant together because we were just still, you know, three or four years later, very much of the same kind of mindset and the same drive and the same passion and the same work ethic Um, Even though neither of us had any money and we really didn't know the first thing about opening a business or running a business or owning a restaurant, I think from pretty early on, because I was a woman in a man's field, I must have gotten, you know, had the intuition that uh, working for myself was going to be my best option. And that seemed like a, like just, a foregone conclusion. I, I, for some reason, it never came up for me to really think about, well, who am I going to work for next? Who am I going to work for next? It was more like, when am I going to work for myself and call my own shots and be my own boss? And um, so that was sort of a decision that we we made and decided based on just kind of pure drive, but not anything in reality. We wouldn't have known how to write a business plan or we'd never seen, I'd never seen a P&L from a restaurant. I really just knew that that was what I was going to do. I came back to Chicago and got a job, you know, within 48 hours and just got back to work with the idea in the back of my mind that, you know, I wanted to start creating some kind of situation where I was going to be my own boss. And it turned out that Susan went back to to L.A. and she called about four or five months later and said, I have an opportunity. I think you should come out. I'm working at this little cafe they don't know what they're doing. They would love for us to do the food, and, you know, we could eventually become partners. And it's, I, I said, well, I'll come out and look at the kitchen, and, you know, my birthday's next weekend. So I bought a ticket, round-trip ticket to L.A., and I went to check everything out. And uh, there was this tiny cafe, 900 square feet, called City Cafe, and the kitchen was about 10 feet by 10 feet, and it didn't have a stove. It just had two hot plates. And uh, I looked at Susan and I said, you know, two years of chef school and all these apprenticeships, working my fingers to the bone on 
you think I'm going to move out here and work without even a stove? That's crazy. But uh, she said, no, I think we're going to put a stove in. That's the plan. We're going to put one in. We'll, we'll get one in by the time you move here. Just move here. And she's very persistent. Susan is, she just doesn't take no for an answer. So um, sure enough, about three months later, I moved out, and on the weekend I moved out, uh, the stove was installed in the hood, and we had four whole burners and an oven, and we just cooked our hearts out for the first three years and worked six days and six nights. We were closed on Mondays and just, you know, wrote the menu every day on a blackboard, and we we served food that we just would was that we grew up with, that we loved, that we learned at the different French restaurants we worked at. And eventually we started serving food that we were drawn to that was kind of, you know, from all over the world, really. We didn't have really a certain affinity for only European food. Susan took a trip to India and came back and we put three or four Indian dishes on the menu. And then about a year later, I took a trip to Bangkok, where my uncle was opening a gelatin capsule plant as a consultant, and he was able to get me a job working in a kitchen in Bangkok, and this was in 1983, and I worked for a month for uh, a chef who did the authentic Thai buffet every day, and she had worked for the king and queen of Thailand, and though she didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Thai, we just had, you know, an amazing lovely month together, and she taught me so many great um, things about Thai food. I completely fell in love with it. And when I came back, we put three or four Thai dishes on the menu. So the City Cafe menu started just evolving into a real melting pot of global cuisine. And then we were starting to get a lot of recognition. Uh, Julia Child had come in. Ruth Reichel had written some really nice articles about us. And it was a great time to be a young woman chef in 1981, 82, 83, 84. That was the time when lots of explosive kind of food scene was brewing in Los Angeles. And it was just, you know, an amazing, lucky time to be in the right place. City Cafe wasn't just another restaurant. With a menu globally inspired and Mary Sue and Susan making a name for themselves in the city of Los Angeles, they would soon move to a bigger space to open City Restaurant, which was a lesson in business and growth for them both. We uh, learned about a little bit about business, and we were bursting at the seams. We had not only put in the stove, we'd put in some other prep spaces in the back. We were kind of just bursting into the alley and cooking on picnic tables some of the time because we were very busy and um, we needed, you know, more refrigeration and more space. It became pretty clear after two and a half, three years that we we had an opportunity to open a bigger restaurant that could really showcase our skills in a in a way that, you know, was different. So together with the partner who owned the cafe originally, we put out an offering and raised the money to open City Restaurant, which was about 10 blocks away, and it was in an old carpet warehouse that we'd been driving by to and from work every day and had big bow truss ceilings and very open and warehouse and like a clean slate where we went in and talked to the carpet warehouse, the two brothers who'd 
gone into followed their father into that business and they owned the building and we kind of badgered them until they they decided that it would be a fine idea to to lease the space to us for a restaurant so we raised the money and we were lucky enough that we had between friends and family and some really great customers enough people that believed in us to you know raise the money and and open city restaurant which was opened in 1985 in September so and that was a real learning experience I'd never opened a restaurant before for anyone I'd worked for I'd worked for a, a, a restaurant that was up and running and you know it it was a different time and era because there weren't restaurants opening and closing all the time like they are now it was you know restaurants would be open and they'd run for a long long time and you might go and work for them but working through an opening was something I'd never done and so this was and Susan hadn't done it either so this was uh, really learning by fire Mary Sue's legacy goes beyond the kitchen in collaboration with Susan Feniger and others she's published five cookbooks City Cuisine Mesa Mexicana Cantina The Best of Casual Mexican Cooking Cooking with Two Hot Tamales and Mexican Cooking for Dummies She's also a seasoned television personality, starring with Feniger in 396 episodes of Two Hot Tamales and Tamales World Tour on the Food Network. Prior to the shows on the Food Network, in 1993, Milliken and Feniger appeared with Julia Child in her PBS series, Cooking with Master Chefs. She's also hosted radio shows and has become known not only as a chef, but a teacher and advocate. Susan and I both love to teach. And we started very early on, even when we just had City Cafe. And in 1982, I think we taught our first cooking class at the little cooking school that was next to Mommy's Own called Ma Cuisine. And I remember the first class, we had seven people in the audience, and I was so nervous. I asked Susan to introduce me as her deaf-mute partner. <laughs> but, of course, I I did end up talking. But... um we, I think teaching is a way to really articulate what you believe in, whether, no matter what subject you're teaching. But I really highly recommend teaching as a, as a way to really kind of solidify your thoughts about and, and your philosophy and how you feel about your craft, no matter what it is. And for me, teaching really led to, uh, first we had a radio show, which I, I became very interested in food safety and our food systems. Right around the time we opened Border Grill, actually, I was pregnant with my first baby, and I, I started to really pay a, a more acute attention to the where our food's coming from, and I started to really ask more questions and follow news stories. And there was a big news story about ALAR on apples. And I remember Meryl Streep made a big protest about we didn't want apples with ALAR. We wanted pure, fresh apples. And I called the radio station locally and I said, you know, um, the NPR station, I'd like to do a little food minute like an interstitial every once in a while about, you know, things that people need to be aware of that are in the food system that aren't good for you. 
the general manager of the radio station said, well, I think that's a terrible idea, for one. You don't want to be alarmist about the food, you know, the food system. But why don't you come in and do, like, a full one-hour radio show celebrating food? Because you guys would be great. And we had no experience whatsoever, had never been on a radio other than maybe a couple interviews. And within a week, there we were with our own radio show, um, Go, you know, rattling on about food for an hour every Saturday morning. After we did the radio show for two or three years, uh, we were on a book tour with our second cookbook, Mesa Mexicana, and um, the publisher had sent us to the Food Network for to to promote the book. We did, um, you know, a segment on In Food Today or or one of those news shows with Donna Hanover and. David Rosengarten, I think. And after we finished talking about the book, the um, Reese Schoenfeld, who had started the Food Network, came to us and said, "You know, we think you should, you two should have a TV show, and we should call it something like Cooking with Girls South of the Border." And Susan and I said, "Well, maybe we do a TV show, but it's not going to be called that." <laughs> and that's when we sort of started brainstorming what would we do a show uh, about and what it would be called. And we had just put out our, our cookbook, Mesa Mexicana, and we, um, I think Susan's mother came up with Cooking with Two Hot Tamales as a great name for a TV show. And it kind of stuck, and Food Network liked it, and we liked it, and we went on to do about um, 290 shows with them. Mary Sue is on the National Board of Share Our Strength, committed to ending childhood hunger in America by 2015 with the No Kid Hungry campaign. She's passionate about the environment and leads the culinary industry with eco-friendly policies. On top of that, along with a handful of progressive women chefs, Mary Sue founded Women Chefs and Restaurateurs. Uh, there were quite a few women chefs in San Francisco, a few less so in L.A., and a handful in New York, and we would be put together at different events when people couldn't think of a theme, they would go with, oh, let's do all the girls, let's have all the women come and cook for this fundraiser or that event. So we would get together often when people asked us to cook at their events, and Barbara Tropp in particular was the founder and driver of Women Chefs and Restaurateurs. And when she invited me to be one of the founders, I at first said I didn't think I would be very good at it because I wasn't sure we needed an organization to support women. Weren't we making headway and weren't we doing pretty well on our own? And she pulled me aside and really helped me see. I think even up until that point, I was still... You know, you put your blinders on and you kind of power through certain adversities, and that's the best way to get there. And she really helped me to kind of take those blinders off and have a closer look at how women were really getting stuck and taken advantage of and not really moving forward in the culinary field as they should or could have. So it was a great experience for me to be part of the founding board of the Women Chefs and Restaurateurs, a very powerful group of women, Lydia Bastianich and Barbara Tropp and Joyce Goldstein and Barbara Lazaroff and Ann Rosenzweig. 
Joanne Killeen from Rhode Island. Uh, we got together several times, and it was a great, great experience for me um, to learn from other women what some of their challenges were and where we could really support the up-and-coming women in our field. What success looks like for me 20 years from now would be to have grown my company and have, instead of 350 employees, maybe have seven or 800 or maybe 1,000 employees and have, I think I'm very proud of employing people. I think that is one of the things that gets me up in the morning and makes me happy about my job. I also would like for my role in the company to to shift so that I can be more, less every single day and more um, focused on these extracurricular things that I love to do. And hopefully, you know, um, people will look to Border Grill as a, a not a super expensive, a very affordable restaurant that took on some of these challenges of serving the right kind of meats, the right kind of fish, the right kind of vegetables, and in the right combinations so that, um, you know, we have an 80-20 program where we're serving dishes that are 80% plant-based with just 20% protein, and we try to create as many of those kinds of dishes as we can, and, and I'd like to be known as a a leader of a movement that, you know, gets our food system to the places that it's going to need to go to feed almost 8 billion people. Evolutionaries is produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee for HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The songs used in this piece in order of appearance are Blue Light by Jack Inslee, Look at Me When You Lick the Dutch by Rectech, Mild 7 by End Vice Versa, Snickers by Obesity, Hallways by Knife Show, All Night by Morph Ground, Magic 13 by RDBN, Island by AGT, Four of Seven by Jack Inslee, Dirty Hands by Eula, and again Blue Light by Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.